0: Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller and this is a podcast about writing for designers. Today on the show, I am joined by the writer and educator, Leslie Roberts. I was introduced to Leslie through the recent podcast guest, Mary Bannis, who teaches with Leslie at the California College of Arts in San Francisco. Leslie is the chair of the graduate writing program there at CCA. And many of her classes are about teaching writing to designers of, of all types. Uh, you know, over the last few years, I've talked to a lot of designers who are also writers or designers who are also teaching and designers who are teaching writing. But I don't think I've talked to a writer who comes from outside of the design world, yet finds themselves teaching writing to designers. And Leslie seemed like the perfect person to do that. And so I was really interested in talking to her about all of this and about this relationship between design and writing and how she thinks about that as somebody who's coming from coming to it from a a writing perspective instead of a design perspective. We also talk about her early love of writing and reading, her time as a journalist and why she decided to leave that career to get an MFA. We also talk about her research around ideas of ecologies and her thinking on nature and the environment. This is a a really wide-ranging conversation, one that I think you'll really, really enjoy. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism. As well as a preview of the upcoming episode, Scratching the Surface is 100% supported through these memberships. So if you like the show, if you want to see it continue, if you want to help out with its ongoing production, I hope that you would consider joining. All you have to do is go to scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you as always for listening and enjoy this conversation with Leslie Roberts. Your background to kind of set the stage for how you got to do the work that you're doing now and kind of how you think about the work that you're doing now and so i saw that you originally uh got a bfa in political science and i'm curious about that what were you interested in when you were a 18 19 year old uh studying political science
1: Uh, When I was a 19-year-old political science student at the University of Michigan. So my father, uh, who just died in August, his name was Edwin A. Roberts Jr. He was a Pulitzer Prize-winning opinion maker, and he uh, did not attend college. Uh, He had gone to college for a year and then left to go home and support his family. And he was a huge Mm. proponent of a college education. He was an autodidact. And he was also um, very much of the mindset that if you went to a place like the University of Michigan, you did not study writing or English. You studied mm-hmm. um, in subject areas that would give you what he called mental capital. And so mm-hmm. I was strongly encouraged to study economics and political science. And so I did. And I have never regretted those, that choice because I'm a huge reader on my own. And I've always right. been a writer. So I think the advice that he gave that young me was, was really excellent advice. Because when you study political science, you are taught how to think about uh, things from sort of a numeric point of view, but also from the, the idea that there are ways you can evaluate how groups of people are thinking, you know, extrapolated from uh, smaller mm-hmm. groups that you study. And so the people yeah. I worked with at Michigan were doing fascinating field work where they were trying to understand things. So Michigan had a very famous uh, center um, where they, the, the fellow Arthur Miller, who created the exit poll, was teaching there when I was there. Mm-hmm. And they had a very interesting faculty that did a lot of field work where they would do things like uh, look at groups of minors in West Virginia to see how their home and educational environment affected their political standpoint. And then they'd compare it with um, an equivalent group of minors in Chile. And Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. saw people trying to uh, create and generate knowledge in very fascinating ways. And at the time, you you know, I was young, so I wasn't really thinking about it so much. But as the years have gone by, I've thought more about how do we know how people think? And I guess that's what I got mm-hmm. from the, political, the study of political science. How do we theoretically um, and in a very rigorous way um, understand how people are thinking and making decisions?
0: So you said you were always a reader and a writer and that your father thought that you should study something else besides writing. Uh, can you talk about that interest in writing? Where did that come from? What kind of writing were you interested in when you were a, a child?
1: Yeah, so... I made my first book when I was eight years old, and uh, I I still have it, and it was a story. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was, a, and I illustrated it as well, uh, and it was, uh, uh, the title is Princess Dawn and the Black Knight, so my eight-year-old mind was preoccupied with princesses and rescues and things of that nature. I mm-hmm. I actually don't know exactly why some people feel the need to um, write their their thoughts down, but it was an instinct that I would just say was innate in me and and probably very much cultivated Mm -hmm. by growing up in a home where my father's work was about writing and he spoke about writing and he wrote from a studio at our house. So writing was Mm -hmm. active practice in my home and so it just seemed organic to be doing writing, that I didn't know that that wasn't something everybody did. it was only much later,
0: right. that I, oh, that's interesting, yeah,
1: it was only much later that I came to see like, wait, everybody isn't mm-hmm. making books in their room after school
0: <laughs> yeah and and so so did you think, and I don't mean to kind of you know spend this whole conversation back in your childhood right. of right. uh being a being a writer, but did you see that as? as as a career, I guess, you know what I mean? Like, is that just like, oh, this is just what I'm doing when I grow up, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, so, Like, were you conscious about that?
1: Uh, I would say the answer to that, as far as I can recall, I would say yes. So one of the things that I learned from my father uh, was he loved his work and he would sometimes, he smoked a pipe and sometimes he would sit around and contemplate, we lived in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and there were many sort of you know, mm-hmm. D.C. bureaucrats who were neighbors. You know, the fathers and mothers worked for with the mm-hmm. EPA. And he would sometimes sit around and say, I love my work so much. I don't understand why anybody would have a job that they just sort of went to while they were living for their weekend. And he would often, mm-hmm. when he came home from work at night, he worked for the, um, a newspaper called the National Observer, was published by the wall street journal it was actually kind of ahead of its time it was a weekly um sort of compendium of the it was a compendium of the week's news and it had a very oh, interesting. It Had a conservative bent to it yeah one of his colleagues was hunter s thompson
2: oh wow! A, yeah okay. if you
1: look at the roster of people who work for the national observer it's dazzling it's really dazzling so they were <laughs> on to something early um and so he would come home at night and he would say boy did i have fun at work today!" And this idea that one mm. was fun. And I, and I talked to my students about this uh, rather frequently, which is that, you know, we, sometimes we get into our serious mind and, and we kind of, we leave the child's mind and we no longer think that we're capable of or entitled to have fun with our work. But I've always had mm-hmm. tremendous fun with my writing and I encourage my students to think of it that way. I think, I think our work as creatives needs to be centered on elements of the child mind and elements of play. And I think it's in that that playful association and joy that we really become highly generative thinkers and we retain our ability to be speculative thinkers.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so funny to hear you say that you're catching me at a very weird time in that I have been thinking about the difference in my creative process now than in my creative process when I was an undergrad student and even my quote unquote creative process when I was a kid (laughs) and how much more uh, free and wandering it was and without any kind of fear. (laughs) Uh, And now, even though it's my job and, and I'm known for it, it doesn't have that anymore. And, you know, because, you know, now I'm a known person and there's certain things that feel like they're expected of me or I, you know, I'm a public person that needs to maintain a certain, uh, you know, uh, kind of branding element. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking that's that that's my goal for for 2020 is is I want to return to that kind of just free making and that just kind of belief in the work and and putting that work out there and some of it will stick and some of it doesn't but it's okay you know, that, that fun freeing element is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. No,
1: that's really beautiful. Um, This semester, Jarrett, I had Chip Lord of Ant Farm. He teaches with us
0: uh, Mm, my
1: graduate seminar and, and give a beautiful, he gave this wonderful talk about his career. And the thing that really impressed me was how focused the talk was on the things that he loves and how, you know, Loved, yeah. He's loved cars uh, since he was a young man, and he went through his whole obsession with cars and with car design the features of cars that drew his eye mm-hmm. and I looked mm-hmm. around the room and I watched my students you know respond to this and and when somebody when you're in the presence of somebody who's deeply immersed in the things that they love and they're explaining it there's a very particular idea. Energy yeah. you feel, I'm sure you've been at these kinds of talks,
2: yeah, and yeah. and, and yeah. then what
1: was so lovely is that as the the talk was sort of concluding, he was saying how you know, given that we're we're in this climate catastrophe now, he really needed to shift his gaze away from his beloved cars towards trees, mm. and he was developing the mm. same sort of warmth and uh, feeling for trees that he had for once had ha- had for cars, although he, he was also right. beautifully forgiving of himself for loving the car. it wasn't a scold, he just said basically yeah. he said, as times change, you know we need to change you know our our thoughts with them, and I love that
0: yeah, oh, I love that, yeah yeah, that's so nice and and so like for you as this kid who's growing up with a father who loves his work and talks about how much he loves his work and you are writing and are, are kind of loving this process. And then you're in school and you're studying political science. And this is kind of filtering into these things that you're thinking about. What comes after, what kind of jobs were you doing kind of immediately after undergrad? Were you writing kind of immediately? Uh,
1: No, actually, as you know, even then, so this was, you know, a long time ago, but even then the way you, um, You you know got into you know a business like journalism was starting at the bottom. I mean, unless you had a really stellar Mm -hmm. uh, career at the Michigan Daily and got hired by the Chicago Tribune, and there'd be one or two people who had that path. You really had to uh, go out and and just start you know making your way bit by bit. And so in those days, you know, journalism was still thriving. And so the idea was you either went to a very small newspaper. And started out reporting, you know, a, a local beat like cops and courts, or right. or you could right. go to a larger urban newspaper and start very low on the on the ladder. Uh, in my case, I you know, because I was from mm-hmm. the D.C. area, I moved back to D.C. and I, you know, I worked in the kind of you know typical things you do immediately when you're sort of scrambling. And then I was hired mm-hmm. by a magazine, a national magazine called Saturday Review, and. Saturday Review was being reinvigorated. You know, back in the uh, you know, mid-century, it had been like the weekly magazine that everybody read. It was the Saturday Review of Books then. Mm-hmm. It was the time when Book of the Month Club was huge. We were trying to bring it back, our team, um, along the lines of like a Vanity Fair. And Vanity Fair was Vanity Fair was reinvigorating itself at the time too. And so there was this big sort of rush of these glossy. Chatty, um, smart, um, kind of sexy magazines coming out. So, we were trying to do that out of DC. What was funny about it was that uh, the people who were running it really didn't know what they were doing. They had bought it and aspirations (laughs) Mm for it. So, then they hired an editorial team. They brought in um, an art director who they hired out of Texas Monthly, which was one of the hottest. And so, in the magazine world, you refer Mm -hmm. to magazines as books. So Texas Monthly was one of the yeah. hottest books at the time. So they got an art guy from there. They brought in writers who were also writing for Vogue and The New Yorker. And I was brought on as an assistant um, on the art side to help as uh, the art director. Mm. Basically, I think my title was assistant photo editor. And so okay. so I started out doing things like calling Annie Leibowitz's studio to get images from them. And at that <laughs> time... At that time, it was cheaper to put me on an airplane and fly me up to New York to pick up films from these very famous photographers and fly me back, than to than to use FedEx. (laughs) I know it's it's just something that's amazing. (laughs) That was that. that was my life, and so it was quite dazzling. And it it went you know we bumped along that way, and then the magazine wasn't able to turn the corner. And it folded, and then I got picked up by uh, the Washington Post, and they have a syndicate called the Mm -hmm. Writers Group, and they picked me up as an editorial assistant. And while I was doing these jobs, I was also doing little freelance pieces for places, and I was beginning to cultivate my Mm -hmm. sense of what kind of writer I wanted to be. I knew I wanted to write books, But I also, you know, I wasn't from a wealthy family. I had to have, you know, I always had to have a day job, right? So then at the the Post, though, that was a very, um, a very important time in my career. Even though it was a very, um, you know, it was a very functional job, the writers there were very kind and they were very willing to share thoughts and insights, as were all the editors. And some of the writers who were there when I was hmm. there, uh, you know, David Remnick was there on the style desk. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, ben Bradley was the editor and, you know, Ben Bradley, Ben Bradley was the kind of person. So, you know, so I was this sort of young woman who imagined, I imagined myself, you know, moving abroad and having this big international reporting career, which I ultimately achieved, but that's, you know, that's like kind of another story. But I, uh, <laughs> yeah. I read novels from the Metro to my desk. And I had had figured out a way to walk and read. So to even, so to Mm. double down on that habit, (laughs) I was reading novels in French. And so one one day I'm doing my reading in French thing and I get on the elevator at the post and I'm not, I I never looked up because I was reading and somebody started speaking to me in French. And I looked up and it was Ben Bradley. And of course- Mm. I was very surprised that he was speaking French. And yeah. and he said to me, he was very he was fascinated by this. And and I told him a little bit about what I did and who I worked for at the post. And I was in the newsroom delivering copy, you know, pretty much every day. And he said to me, if you ever come by my office and I'm not on the phone and the door's open, and there's nobody in there, pop your head in and you know, let's talk about where you where you want your career to go. And, oh, wow. and that's an example of the real generosity that I found in, in these very, very uh, creative and talented journalists. They were incredibly um, interested in helping young writers find their place. And it was through an editor uh, at The Post that I got my job with the New York Times Regional Newspaper Group out of Sarasota, Florida. And, um, okay. Yeah. So what a lot of people, because, you know, this is inside baseball about journalism. So the New York times has this group called nitrang and it's a training ground for many, many, many reporters who ultimately go on to other types of jobs at much bigger papers. And the editors are Mm. smart and the papers are, are smart and they win awards and they really, really train you how to be an editor and a reporter. And that was where I, I really cut my teeth. I, they, they picked me up and shipped me off to Sarasota, uh, Florida, where I was immediately um, editing one of the features uh, sections that came out. I think it was the Wednesday section. So I went from being somebody who was walking around reading novels in French, and, you know, aspiring to, you know, have a, a real place right. <laughs> in the world of journalism to showing up at my desk and, you know, really just jumping in feet first. And that was dazzling. And it taught me so much about uh, confidence and care and precision and accuracy.
0: How long did you do that before deciding that you were going to go back to school and get an MFA oh. in writing? Because it sounds like you could have had a, cr- a nice career continuing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on that track. And it sounds like you were kind of doing a lot of the things you wanted to do. Why, uh, why the change?
1: So journalism imploded. You know, journalism started, newspapers started cutting staff, uh, you know, not that long Mm -hmm. after I was getting a lot of traction. The the writing was on the proverbial wall. Mm -hmm. Right. And so a lot of people, um, you know, stuck with it. I I I ended up, um, you know, moving abroad and reporting the news abroad for a couple of years, which had been my, you know, my goal. Um, I, I really want to live mm-hmm. outside the U S and do that. And then, you know, when you're working, I was, I was um, in a number of places, including, including the Antarctic and um, some of them were freelance, right. you know, some of them were freelance gigs, but then I also had stable gigs at um, in Bangkok. I was in Bangkok for over a year reporting the news there. Mm. And when you're being an expat, there comes a time where you have to make a decision, which is you're either going to go all in on this and stay and become the sort of mm-hmm. you know human that expats become, or you're going to come back. And mm-hmm. at that time I was um, 28, 29 years old. And I really did not want to live a life where I never went to another baseball game. And that's funny, <laughs> but I'm a huge fan of baseball. Right. And I just started thinking about like what kind of adult life did I want to have? Like I spent my 20s doing right. all this really sexy reporting and meeting all these dynamic people. And, you know, I was really out there and I just wanted to kind of reel it in and I wanted to be a little more thoughtful about um, what my next steps were. So I ended up moving to San Francisco and establishing a pretty robust freelance career because in those days you could, you could live off freelance <laughs> writing and I loved mm-hmm. that. And that chugged along for a good while. And I ultimately became a mother. I have two sons. And um, I woke up one day. And at that point, I was running um, a magazine based in San Francisco. I was working about 65 hours a week. And I had my two young children. And I looked at my partner. And he and I were talking about our lives. And this was... um, a really important moment for me, and I share this with my students a lot, I realized that I could continue doing what I was doing, living in my cottage in the Mission with my you know, beautiful family, and I would never, ever write a book because I didn't have... Mm-hmm. Some people have that thing where they can come home at night after a long day and write their books. I, I
2: don't have mm-hmm. that.
1: <laughs> I have developed yeah. a little yeah. more of that muscle over the years, but... I I am uh, more of an introvert, and I need to recharge my batteries in order to get more deeply into my art. Right. So yeah. so yeah, I decided to apply to the University of Iowa's nonfiction writing program, and they accepted me. And so we moved to Iowa very intentionally with the idea that it was going to be a three-year space to get this book about the Antarctic into the world. And going up to graduate school um, as an older student was really uh, ecstatic for me because I remembered all the follies of my youth. You know, I remembered the time right. I missed school because right. I'd been tripping the night before. And I thought, I'm not going to be that person. <laughs> I'm not going to be the one who stays right. out, you know, all weekend doing drugs so I can't go to class. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So yeah.
1: I, I arrived at Iowa really sharp and ready to go. And Iowa is so delivered on everything it promised. And I had the opportunity to take a lot of photography classes and geology classes, and really uh, immerse myself in that in that tasty R1 environment. And as the three years wrapped up, I had every intention of moving back to San Francisco. And you know, my book was done enough that I knew I could finish it. You know, when I when I got back, no, you don't mm-hmm. finish a book in graduate school. It's rare you do that. <laughs> Much yeah. to people's dismay, when they start working on their MFA, no, you're not going to get your book done in two years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we we all aspire to those things. Love it. Yeah. So, yeah. so I really had every intention of coming coming back. Um, here and doing that. And then one of my advisors suggested I apply for a Fulbright. And I I did not think I would receive the Fulbright because Fulbright for me means really smart. And I think there are a lot of things I think about my brain, but I've never been somebody who sits around thinking, I'm one of the smart people. I think I'm one of the the Mm -hmm. curious people. And I think I'm somebody who really, I will dog something till I get it done. Like I'm one of those people where if there's a hoop and you want to raise it higher and I need to get a bigger running start to get through the hoop. Yes, I will do that.
0: (laughs) Right. Yep. I know exactly what you mean. I
1: applied for the Fulbright and unbelievably I got it. So I, my Fulbright was to go to New Zealand to pursue research. And this kind of toggles back to the idea of the research I was exposed to at the University of Michigan in the political science department. So mm-hmm. I took together this mm-hmm. highly interdisciplinary, really weird proposal about how uh, objects from the Antarctic tell the story of a place very few people will ever visit that doesn't appear on maps, that explores the erotics of the object and thinks about how we design our experiences around places we will never go, ecologies we will never see through stories. How do we tell those stories? And and perhaps Mm -hmm. more importantly, who are the people who are entitled or get to tell those stories? So part of the the underpinnings of the project was, what are the lesser told or untold stories of the more simple people who go out into the world and how can we hear them?
0: There must be something about san francisco because hearing you talk about being in san francisco with your your young family and you could kind of see your whole career ahead of you and that you were never going to write a book was exactly my experience when i lived in san francisco and it was like oh i have this i have this good job and i could see the like moving up the ladder at that job uh very clearly and that it would have been like this would be a fine life and it's like all laid out i can see it very clearly and that is not what i want and it was the same thing of i i I could come home and work on this other stuff but it doesn't seem like i could actually do that yet and so I also left San Francisco to go to grad school um, for the same thing, to kind of try to figure that out. And so I thought that was so funny to hear you say that. It was the exact so we're on, same thing.
1: Yeah, we are on similar paths, so you can completely understand that that point of view.
0: Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. Can you talk about, I, I found it so interesting you talking about those early kind of journalism jobs and how much you learned from, from those people who are mentoring you and kind of being in those different situations. What did you learn in the MFA program that then, you know, could add to this kind of writing education that, that you already were kind of getting at these other jobs? How did that kind of layer into it? I
1: think that's a really that that's a great question. So at Iowa, I was surrounded by very talented and hardworking <laughs> writers. And one of the things that I really um, drew from the experience of being with uh, these hardworking writers was the, the very simple fact that uh, creativity, acts of creativity, in the where you're trying to put your world out, your work out into the world, so there will be other people engaging with your work, is a type of blood sport, and it isn't a gentle, soft, mm. and quiet place where mm-hmm. we sit, you know, in our you know, we, we stretch out on our divan with a certain cup of tea, you know, thinking our, you know, lost in our pensées. Instead, it's a, it's a, it's a discipline and a practice. And what they taught me at Iowa was how to have a creative practice. And they were very intentional mm. in, in, in their teaching both of craft, but also in their teaching of how do we continue to generate work once we are no longer in the gilded in the cage, right? Once you, once they open the door and you fly out, right. you go back to the world you came from where, oh, by the way, nobody is waiting for your work. And, you know, many people will revile right. you for, <laughs> for trying to make the work. And I say that, I, mm-hmm. I really say that kiddingly mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. people aren't even thinking about it enough to revile it. So, yeah. So, I think that was the main thing I got, but also one of the things I wanted to point to is that, so I went to Iowa as a journalist with a very strong work ethic. So every night I would bathe, you know, feed my children, bathe my children. They would go to bed at 8.15, 8.30, and then I would sit down at my staircase desk in my little room and I would write until 11 and I was very disciplined about that. And sometimes it was writing, and sometimes it was mm. reading, or or and I was also a, a a teaching fellow there, so I was teaching undergraduates. But I I I did mm. develop a particular discipline and habit, and that has that has never left me. I'm a very very disciplined writer.
0: What you were saying about kind of this uh, developing that practice, developing that discipline in graduate school, and then not just not just thinking about it as this is what I'm doing while I'm here, but this is what I need to keep doing after, I think is so interesting. And I cannot tell you how many people I have talked to either on the podcast, my friends who have who've gone to grad school, myself included, who have found their grad school experience to be so creatively and intellectually fulfilling. And then they leave and it's like back to the way it yes. was before. And it was like, that was a magical two years, and now it's gone. <laughs> how, so can you can you just talk a little bit more about how at Iowa they kind of talked about that, of kind of continuing that into the quote-unquote yeah, real so world? one
1: of the things people are often surprised about is uh, they'll ask me what's become of my classmates. So I was in the nonfiction writing program, but I had quite a bit of engagement with people who were in the, the writer's workshop uh, where they teach and poetry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my partner at the time uh, was a poet who, you know, the, and you know, his dad and the poet um, who had graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop, you know, years before. And one of the things that we used to always discuss is how many people left Iowa, and then went back to what they were doing before they went back and were school teachers. They went back and right. you know, they 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 went back to the lives they had before they came to Iowa and and part of what I saw and again I think this goes back to being um, a, a slightly you know older student and being more hungry you know wanting it more because I came out of the, the working world I wanted to make sure I could accomplish the things as a create creative person in spite of the 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 facts and challenges that the day-to-day world was going to be sort of affecting on me. So I think you know, my experience at mm-hmm. Iowa
2: mm-hmm.
1: was very, I mean, well, it was very lyrical and poetic and I was introduced to all kinds of, you know, craft thinking and art making, thinking about how graduate school is transformative was very much in the front of my mind. And, and I still teach that way. Right. Uh, at you know because i teach graduate students and i talk to people yeah i talk to my students very explicitly mm-hmm. about this that we are making choices to have <clears throat> to have these practices and if you if you waver from that mm. choice if you get distracted from the choice and Jarrett, you know we live in times where you know distraction as a word is fascinating to look at because think about what the the center of that word is traction right what is, you know, what does it mean to have traction, mm-hmm. to, to be ambulatory, to be moving, and to be distracted from what you're right. doing. So we live in times where there are so many forces at work on our brains uh, that that we really need to um, be we need to double down as artists and just say, my art is more important yeah. than these things that have been invented to make my life easier. And I say easier in quotes. (laughs)
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I know, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Can we talk about teaching a little bit? Um, You you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you is that you are a writer who teaches writing to designers. Um, And I am a designer who is interested in writing, who, when, when I was in grad school, took... You know as many of the writing classes as I could, and uh one of my my one of my great writing professors uh, at Micah where I went to grad school was an architect who who also was a writer, so he was still coming from it from a kind of design lens and now I'm a designer who's teaching writing to designers in a graduate program here in New York, and I'm curious about your relationship to design as coming from this from a writer first uh I guess I have, a, this is a two part question. How did the, the word design or the world of design uh, become a part of your life? And then how do you think about teaching writing to designers as opposed to writing? Right. That, no, to that, that's a great
1: question. So as I mentioned, you know, my background in, um, in making things comes from uh, very much the work of the hand. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I've always been an artist and a drawer. So I think about things visually and I always, you know, as I said, my first book when Mm -hmm. I was eight, was an illustrated book (laughs) and I, I still paint and draw. And, um, and I think, you know, my sensibility about seeing the world comes to me through, through that work of the hand, but let's go back to, let's get to the heart of this question about the design Mm -hmm. aspect. So I worked at the magazine on the art side and thought about what does what does a story look like? What does it want to look like? So I had the opportunity very early in my career to think about what's the visual um, depiction of ideas. So that was already sort of a little bit of a spore in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was running the magazine here in San Francisco, I had an art director who worked for me. I hired somebody in from Scientific American, and so I was very involved in both the redesign of the magazine. I, you know, I led the redesign of the magazine, and I worked with designers across all the years of running it, and 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 was a very heavy-handed editor on the design side, thinking about how do people move across text in a magazine. How do we you know, use different elements? What are the hierarchies? So I'm very familiar with all of the design elements because I've done it, right? And, and so when I started teaching at California College of the Arts, I came in to teach a creative nonfiction workshop to the graduate students. And at that time, the chair of the MFA design program um, is a very famous interaction designer named Brenda Laurel so she did a lot of the early work with Atari. She did video games for girls, long before people were talking about those things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she's just, she's a genius and she was a great mentor for me. And she, she had heard about my Antarctic work and she was looking to rethink how writing was taught to graduate designers. At the time she had a novelist who was teaching them. Mm -hmm. And so she came in and she'd read my Antarctic book. And if you see, if you, if you look at that, you'll see there's a huge graphical element to how the words are presented. you know the first page of the book has one word on it,
0: right well, I mean, and even the way you were talking that's that's why I was like thinking about this when you were talking about Antarctica is because even when you were talking about it you were saying that you were thinking about you know the stories of these objects, which is you know a designed artifact, and then who gets to tell this that that's design right. writing you're you're writing about design exactly. still
1: right. I just didn't think to call myself that because I right. would never. I'm I'm very careful about expertise. Mm-hmm. As a journalist, I I have expertise in areas. You know, I have you know deep expertise in the environmental humanities around the Antarctic. However, I I'm always a little bit, and this is my journalist mind. I'm always listening for people who are claiming certain types of expertise, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I just I'm I just listen yeah. for that. So I tend yeah. to have a more Um, for lack of a better word, I think a a real self-imposed sense that humility is um, a better way to come at the world. And one doesn't need to name oneself to be something. One is something Mm -hmm. by doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've never had, I've never lacked confidence that I, I bear the expertise around design. Although, Although I know people who have actual m f a s in design and who are graphic designers um would not think of me as a a peer in that space, mm-hmm. I also know people who are in like furniture design and illustration design who very much think of me as a peer in that space so oh, it just, it's sort of, yeah it's just a matter of of who the audience is who's receiving yeah, the yeah, signal. Yeah. So, right. And interaction designers particularly are very have always embraced my way of thinking uh, mm. so and also fashion design they they understand my my way of thinking mm. about design so so Brenda invited me to design a design writing class, which you know what a beautiful gift and and I did, and uh, it ran in the program for about gosh, I guess about six or seven years and so the program is you know changed a bit now and they they teach writing from a very different standpoint and I think it's a I think it's a great one you know when I was mm-hmm. doing it I, I the program started to grow and I uh, started working alongside alongside a curator and design historian who's a very good friend of mine Mara Holt scove who writes about mm-hmm. Heath ceramics and she did a beautiful book called *Manufactured* with her late husband Stephen Holt and mm-hmm. she said yeah, many of I it. think I know that book. Yes. That it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a genius book, right? And they also yeah. did a they make up these portmanteau words like blobjects was one of their projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. I know this.
1: So she and I started teaching together and came up with this system where we would divide the semester up and we would teach what we called arenas. So she would teach from a, a the standpoint of a curator and the des- and design history and i would teach from the side of the story uh, all all great design is a is a story it's just told with you know in mm-hmm. in different ways i very much believe that if you can develop a design practice that has a tower of writing alongside it the writing feeds the made work as the made work feeds the writing and you learn your brain is exercising Two very beautiful acts at the same time, which wouldn't happen if you were doing exclusively one or exclusively the other.
0: That's exactly. I agree with everything you just said, um, and that's that's kind of what I was was curious about. Is kind of how you think about the the intersection of those two, how they influence each other, um, and so for me, something that I often tell my students, whether I'm you know teaching them writing, and and I'm I'm hesitant now that you're talking about. People claiming expertise. I do not necessarily think of myself as a writer, but I've fallen into teaching writing to designers somehow. Um, I tell them that the design. I think the design process and the writing process are actually almost the same thing. Both design and writing are a way to form ideas and to give ideas form. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it, it is. It is a way to help you think, and then to give that thinking a shape to then. Communicate with someone else. I think that's what writing does. I think that's also exactly what design does. And so, being able to toggle between them can help each of can help you actually do each of them individually better.
1: Yes. No. That's that's absolutely perfectly articulated. One of the things that I found, and I'd be curious if you find this with your students as well, is that with my I'm teaching in fashion design now. I you know I'm teaching Mm -hmm. them how to Mm -hmm. write write statements and articulate what their Mm -hmm. work is. And one of the things I find is that a lot of people who are, you know, students who are drawn to design uh, have never had the opportunity to develop a writing practice. And yes. many of them have been sort of categorized as people who are so-called visual thinkers or yes.
2: people, who, yes.
1: people people, who traffic more in the object or the idea in a certain form, but writing isn't their bag. So, right. So part mm-hmm. of, of this and I'm sure you find this as well is to t- try to find sort of clever and sneaky ways to trick them into falling in love with writing and so one of the things I often in- encourage them to do because there's so many of the kids now come out of uh, school environments where they teach to a test and they've had yes. to do a lot of the creative work kind of secretly in their basements and they often are mm-hmm. writing very uh, sort of peanut butter and jelly sorts of essays and things like that. Yep. Yep. I haven't had much exposure to being creative writers, which is very different than my education where I was encouraged to write creatively. So I, um, I get them writing from the first person. I have them mm-hmm. reading the first person and I have them thinking about what their position is on different things. So one of my favorite assignments that, um, I've done with design writers is I have them think about robotics and we look at both the history and the current state of robotics, not AI. It's, it's about movement, not thinking. And then I have them come on a hike with me in the Presidio and imagine how they would um, write a story of a robot that would be doing something to mediate human experience in, in that ecology. And then, oh, wow. they, okay. and then they're then they are to draw their robot mm-hmm. and name it. And some of them get so into it they actually make models of their robot and sort of fall in love with their robot. So as I said, it's sort of this this quiet way to get them reading speculative fiction. And thinking Mm -hmm. about how do we use speculative thinking in a pragmatic way, it puts them out in the world to be thinking about, what if I were to make something that were to exist here? What would it want to do? What would I want it to do? And then, because it's not an actual thing, the stakes are lower for them. And I find they're ready to take much bigger um, risks with narrating Mm -hmm. with power, you know, using language with power and accuracy about what this thing, the intention of this thing is, what it does, how it functions and why, you know, then, so then we're getting back to sort of the journalist piece, the who, what, when, where, why of it. And, and, and I, I know that there's, that there are, there's a, there's a lot of writing that happens around art and design where it it becomes highly theoretical and there's a lot of referencing to, you know, people who lived in France in the middle of the 20th century. And and, Mm -hmm. and I'm not against those references, but I am, I am an antagonist of that thinking. I do challenge. First of all, as somebody who speaks and reads French, I always am curious about translations and how accurate the translation is. Mm I, I, I challenge how much one absorbs from reading fragments of very complicated literary theories and also Mm -hmm. how much one understands without the full scope and lineage of what each of those and they were largely white men were were Mm -hmm. in conversation with other thoughts about so um one of the books i often have my students look at is terry eagleton's little book on literary theory because it's oh yeah, yeah, yeah how do you ever teach that
0: I know but I I love Terry Eagleton and I have that yeah. book somewhere around here. That's a great idea actually.
1: It's, it's marvelous because you can rocket through that book on a weekend and you can then come in, yeah. you know, feeling really, and and it was given to me by one of my mentors at Iowa because I was taking a PhD seminar on Whitman and there was a lot of referencing to, you know, those all those blokes way back when mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I was really flummoxed by that. I said, why aren't we thinking more about Whitman? Why aren't we thinking? And so my lovely teacher, ready to grab my dumb question. And he said, just read this little book on literary theory. He said, no, by the way, what's great about having you in the class is that you come to it as a creative nonfiction person and as a journalist, and your gaze and disposition on his work is towards his work as a journalist and how alive he was in the world. I mean, if you look at Whitman's poetry and I read Whitman every day uh, still, and that was another thing that I derived from Iowa is a love of reading poetry. so he Whitman's writing changed dramatically after the civil war and it changed well, maybe not direct dramatically but it changes after the civil war and one of the reasons it changed after the civil war is that he worked as a nurse during the civil war he treated right, yeah. the wounded bodies of men and if if you know if you've watched either the Rick Burns civil war or you've read anything about the civil war you know that the injuries that people sustained during that war were horrific and the fixes for the injuries were even worse in many cases you know they didn't have anesthesia they weren't um they they didn't understand about how germs spread so people didn't wash their hands before performing surgeries I mean it was it was you know just this like hell on earth thing and Whitman Whitman Mm -hmm. writes about that but he stuck with it and so you know back to your question so or just thinking about this this theory piece. So while I appreciate that, and, and I loved what you and Jim Voorhees were talking about around theory, while I appreciate yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how theory sparks lenses that would not be available to us had we not read these other people's thoughts, I I also really want to empower my students to learn to generate thoughts outside of that gilded cage.
0: And what what I also think tends to happen is when you are first I see this with my students and I I was guilty of it when I was in in their shoes also, when you learn these people and you feel like it's life-changing or it's like somehow that this has opened up a new way of thinking, you mm-hmm you then use them as a crutch to kind of uh, prop up arguments or to kind of like show off that you know these people. And it doesn't right. actually add anything to the writing itself. It's just a, hey, look, I know who this person is and I know what they said about this. Where if you were to actually just kind of write without that or you know, bringing in these other people, that it actually would make the writing itself more interesting other than falling back on this as, as kind of a... Uh, uh, like a kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. I know, I know these people. You know what yeah. I mean?
1: Yes. No, I completely agree with that. So, so one of the things I, you know, I, I give, uh, I, I also give public talks about ecologies and uh, this, mm-hmm. you know, cohesis movement. And I was in the Maldives this summer doing field research, and I, I had the opportunity to give a talk at Maldives National University. And part about ecopoetics and, and the research I was doing about thinking about climate catastrophe and how how there are better ways to think about it than we're all going to die in some grim apocalypse or start hunting and eating each other as zombies do. And so as I was, I was pressing my arguments around these things, one of the the towers I have to point to is this sort of high theory, this literary theory, because there's a lot of ecological thought that comes out of uh, the, you know, the gilded cage of scholar scholarship. And they're just mm-hmm. moon checking people throughout their books in a way that I understand that's the parlance of the world they live in. But I don't necessarily feel like they're speaking to me and most other humans when they do it. And so they have to do that to get to the metal detector of academia. I get that. They're, you know, they're going to be peer reviewed. They can't just, you know, go on a big riff without referencing these, you know, the people who came before them. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah.
1: However, and this is the part I think you'll love, what the analogy I use is that it's very much like, um, you know, the references you see in the, in the music of like Biggie Smalls or, um, or. You know, Dre or Eminem, where it's this sort of straight out of yeah. Compton thing where they have to name check everything about their neighborhood and their area down to their area code so they can prove that they right. authentically belong in that space.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> that reference, I say, here's the straight out of Compton part of this conversation that comes out of my theory. <laughs> and I think That's that
0: is a great way to think about that. <laughs>
1: I, yeah, it's it's a place I've kind of settled and it, it makes the most sense to me. And, that, you know, I, I don't I'm not arguing at all that um, everybody should just be running around out of context. But I also think given right. that the context right. that's being offered is oftentimes a largely white male, highly patriarchal mm-hmm. and hierarchical view of mm-hmm. the world. That has no place for the female body and no place for people of color, nor does it interrogate, uh, you know, the gross insults that have been um, thrust upon the rest of us by those systems of, you know, racism and misogyny and, you know, economic terror. Uh, Then I really wonder in the 21st century, uh, how do we point to those things while also saying and. We've built a world that's completely unsustainable. We know that it's unsustainable on a planetary scale, and might we not now begin to talk about something away from this apocalyptic kind of you know normcore dream that's being you know thrust at us, and instead say yeah. if we can build this, build and design this this world that's led to climate catastrophe, we can also build, and design a world that can exist within the limitation of the planet. Roland Barthes didn't think about that because he was thinking about the issues of his times. And if Roland was sitting here with me right now, I guarantee you he would be writing about things in a very different way. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, 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 exactly. Um, You know, you brought up, you brought up, um ecologies and 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 climate change and that's kind of where I wanted to end this conversation actually because I have found that you use the word ecologies a lot to talk about your own work in your writing and in in kind of a, a sort of pedagogical sense and I think it's easy to think about ecology strictly as nature, environment, that sort of thing. But in the way you talk about it, it it also seems like this kind of metaphor for a lot of this stuff that you're talking about, uh right. racism and misogyny, that these are all different types of ecologies. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that word ecologies and how that influences all of your work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to talk about that. So the reason I've I've pointed um, my my thinking towards the word ecologies, although I do use the word environment and I do use the word nature, but when I'm using mm-hmm. other words, I'm using them for very specific reasons. And so right. let's start with the word nature. So, so nature is a term that humans created to define everything. That's not us. That's in the world that we haven't made. And it refers to, uh, it points towards the fall it points towards this idea that we're superior and not of this. That nature stands away from mm-hmm. us, and it creates a relational identity to human life on the planet that is a big driver for the the, the situation we're in right now, where the 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 you know the climate is is catastrophically shifting, and so mm-hmm. I find the word ecologies to be a place, it creates a thinking space for me, where I can look at, in an interdisciplinary way, all the things that make up all the diverse ways things live on the planet. And those include, you know, the social systems that we have created, and we live within, and they include the things that actually are here. So let's, let's talk a little bit about perceiver dependent and perceiver independent stories so you know if we if we agree that there are two types of stories one is a perceiver dependent story and one is a perceiver independent so let's start with an example of that so if a human if myself and a kitten are standing on baker beach near my home and looking out at the pacific ocean neither of us can argue that it's not the pacific ocean it is the pacific ocean it is it exists as ocean If instead the kid and I get in a car and we drive up north 25 hours or whatever it is, we'll get to a point where there's going to be a group of humans with guns and they're called Canadians and they're going to be standing on something called a border. And a border is a perceiver dependent story. So we've all agreed to that story. And one of the things that happens when there's disagreement about these perceiver dependent stories is that uh, things like borders shift, right? And and in the you know the, the biggest extreme mm-hmm. of the perceiver dependent story um, shifting, we have revolution, right? You know, look at France in the eighteenth century. Right. So so how do we have the language? How do we find language that has the most power and accuracy to describe the complexities of the times we're in now, where we really can't take out an individual thing like a hummingbird and just look at the hummingbird and say, oh, the hummingbirds are all dying now. You The hummingbirds, the, the ecosystem doesn't support the hummingbirds the way it used to. I really do argue that the only way to fully understand the feelings of being in these times is to have integrated conversations where we're looking at the many different factors. And I want to also say, there are many many scholars around the world who have shifted towards this lens of ecologies and who define it in a similar way one of the people who whose work i'm really enjoying now is joanna Zelinska, who wrote this this really wonderful mm. little book called and it is literally a little book um although you know it's purely called the end of man and uh it's mm. thinking about feminist um post-apocalyptic vision. And she also made a beautiful little film to go with it called Exit Man. And, you know, what many of us are, you know, arguing around this language is that if we can't I, let, let me make that more positive. What we need to do is be thinking about the stories we need to tell now in order to build mm-hmm. that world that's going to be different than the world we're in now. Because we need to build a world that we can sustain. And so markets, you know, right. market, you know, uh, many things will change. Um, and then just to speak briefly about the world environment. So environment is also a little bit problematic, although I I like it more than nature, because it's caught up in ideas of, um, I think, you know, like environmental justice. Although environment and environmental justice are two mm sort of separate things. It it does sort of, again, create this category that has humans in it more than nature does. But it also has this Mm -hmm. sense, to me, it has a feeling of management. And it also has this feeling of like a fight or a battle. And so Mm -hmm. I guess I like ecologies because it feels like it's beginning to get us thinking about OK, I can't take the banana slug out of the conversation, nor can I take out of the conversation the trauma I feel on a daily basis when I look at the news and see things like these wildfires that are burning either 75 miles north of where I live or across the Pacific Ocean outside of Sydney. So we're having increasingly, we're increasingly exposed to this low level and sometimes very high level trauma. Around, wait a minute. Things are destabilizing.
0: I I really like what you were talking about when you were talking about stories and how the how how reframing the way we talk about these things and talking about them in a more integrative way seems to be a path forward. My last question is: I'm you mentioned early on that as a kid you were a reader and a writer you mentioned something that you learned from iowa was appreciation of reading poetry that you still read every day uh i kind of want to end with just what are you reading right now
1: i am reading a genius book by jedediah purdy who's an environmental legal scholar at columbia and it's called this Mm. land is our land and it's 200 pages long and he makes the most beautiful, trackable arguments about uh, many of the things we've talked about. About, I mean, I, I feel as though he's—he and I have been thinking. We're just thinking about very, very similar things, and he articulates it. in because he's a legal scholar in just such a a, a precise way, in a way that, mm-hmm. as a creative writer, I don't often, you know, I, I just don't think about things quite as, you know, and and. It's, Lockdown way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just makes beautiful, beautiful arguments. So I, I've been lost in that. I've also um, been enjoying Richard Powers' book, *The Overstory*, which um, you know, has-
0: you're the second person to to say that in like the last month. I got, and it keeps coming up on my Amazon like recommended Amazon list. So I got to I got to buy this book.
1: Yeah. And then there's a, a new book that's just out by um, a woman named Carmen Mahato. And, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. So we probably should check that, but uh, it's called in the dream house. And she's um, recounting mm. through a series. Each chapter is a different form. It's a memoir that's uh, recounting um, being in a very violent relationship with and traumatic relationship with another woman while she was in graduate school at Iowa. And one of the things that I've been reading around quite a bit lately is um, around trauma and thinking about trauma, because I think this Mm -hmm. is, and you talk about a design challenge. I think the, and it's one of the reasons why I founded the eco movement with those two architects, because we wanted to create a space for Mm -hmm. people to come, come together and make work and write and talk around what our feelings are about different uh, tactics we can have in regard to, uh, you know, climate catastrophe. So I think you'll love this as a writer too. Mm -hmm. We organize ourselves around words that begin with RE. So at the first step we had Mm. in April where we had 48 people, um, we used, we divided everybody into three groups and it was um, remain, resist, retreat. And everybody had to make uh, a message around their word. And the messaging and the made work was lovely. But more importantly, about before we actually started making work, we spent about two and a half hours doing those beautiful things where you just put lots of ideas on the wall around what the feelings, the feelings mm-hmm. of these different conditions of things, because we're, you know, we all need to start thinking in a very focused way and then acting in a focused way about what are, what are, like, what are our actions going to be? You know, how much are we going to try to resist, you know, like the city, cities building seawalls, how much are we going to try to remain like people who, you know, are arguing through the courts that they should be able to live in these beach areas where they're being very impacted by, you know, tides and things like that, and and how much are we going to agree on this notion of retreat, that there become places that really cannot be inhabited in any uh, way that's that's you know to our liking, and we need to retreat to other spaces mm-hmm. because. And, and, and retreat also, you know, intellectually from things like philosophically, like we need to retreat, as I've said, from this this hellish apocalyptic thing that keeps coming up. I mean, we we really need to stop thinking that the only thing we can all do is die. You know, we we need to get out more and 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 love each other yeah. more. We need to dance more. We need to go to listen to music. We need to remember that human culture beautiful and adaptable and and so many fantastic things have been made by humans and that if we focus on on finding ways forward through redesigning the systems that are causing us to collapse (laughs) Mm -hmm. we have a chance you know we do have you know as the song goes one last dance
0: yeah leslie i don't know about you but i feel like that was like a perfect way (laughs) <laughs> to, to wrap dinner. this up uh, this was such a this was such a great conversation um, thank you so I much I feel like for you're my
1: friend podcast. now I feel like we're friends I love it
0: this episode was recorded on November 14th, 2019 our theme music is by Andy Borgasani we're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm thanks for listening